The Doctor Is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Nice to have you with me here on The Doctor Is In. You have always been a voice of reason through all of this. Appreciate your time, what you're doing for America. I give you advice. It doesn't work at all. You are definitely not inept by any means. I like to hear women say that about me. Whatever advice you're going to send my way, I am 100% taking it. I can't tell you what to do. I will not tell you what to do. Okay. Well, thanks. That wasn't the answer I wanted. Are you kidding me? Great stuff, Dr. Ray. I'm glad I called. I've scheduled my day around listening to your radio show. <laughs> you don't have to laugh so hard. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Well, the time span is shortening. It used to be that you had to listen to upwards of a half an hour of this program to guarantee that sometime within the next month, someone in a restaurant seeing you and your children is going to come over and say, your children are so beautifully well-behaved. Can we pay for your meal? It's now down to 17 minutes. Uh, we're, we're monitoring the situation closely. 17 minutes. This is The Doctor Is In. This is E-Person Monday, not email. It's not spelled M-A-L-E, but it sounds M-A-L-E, so just got to be careful. Want to be linguistically sensitive? E-person. And I hate to even say son because that's male. E-people. I don't know. We're, we're, we're trying to find some kind of appellation for this particular variant of the Doctor is In. Doctor is In is a co-production of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network as well as Ave Maria Radio Communications. And right now... Manning, and I can say Manning because he is a man, that's what he says, Manning the board and the brakes is Andrew Kruchak, my producer man, who is my compadre there at Ave. So we're going to, I got a stack here, I got to start working my way through of E-Persons. I started to print them out because I just got tired of scrolling through my phone. I just got confused, but I'm looking at this stack and it's just thick. Hoo-wee. All right, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, <clears throat> all right. This was sent to me by a listener. She said, uh, this is an article that's interesting. Let me give you the backdrop on this article. The Free Press, I'm not familiar too much with the Free Press, they ran a, a an account by uh, someone named Jamie Reed, a former case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center. She recounted her growing alarm at the effects of treatments that sought to transition minors to the opposite sex. Now, there is indication that um, hormonal um, interventions with minors uh, have led to a three times overall mortality rate. Because we really don't know exactly the possible long-term ramifications of putting hormones into you from the opposite sex perspective. Poorly choice of words there but you get the idea um, there was a recent New York Times investigation that corroborated this person's account however she's been dismissed by many in the media because she's not a physician 
Now, there is a woman named Dr. Kaltiala. She's a physician. She has, telling her own story, let me, uh, let me read this and summarize it. Early in my medical studies, I knew I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I decided to specialize in treating adolescents because I was fascinated by the process of young people actively exploring who they are, seeking their role in the world. My patients' adult lives are still ahead of them, so it can make a huge difference to someone's future to help a young person who is on a destructive track to find a more favorable course. Over the past dozen or so years, there has been a dramatic development in my field. She's talking about the mental health field. A new protocol was announced that called for the social and medical gender transition of children and teenagers who experienced gender dysphoria. That is, a discordance between the biological sex and an internal feeling of being a different gender. The condition has been described for decades. And in the 1950s, it is seen as the beginning of the modern era of transgender medicine. During the 20, 20th century and into the 21st, small numbers of mostly adult men, and this is true, right now the gender confusion is predominantly heavily female, adolescent female, and also uh, a high percentage of those children diagnosed on the autistic spectrum. Into the 21st century, small numbers of mostly adult men with lifelong gender distress have been treated with estrogen and surgery to help them live as women. Then, in recent years, new research on whether medical transition, primarily hormonal, could be done successfully on minors. One motivation of the medical professionals overseeing these treatments, now again, I'm reading this woman's article. She, she said, and I think she'll get to that later in the article, that she was among the first to push transgender uh, interventions. One, one motivation of the medical professionals overseeing these treatments was to prevent young people from facing the difficulties adult men had experienced in trying to convincingly, convincingly appear as women. Now, this is all her article. I'm quoting from her. The most prominent advocates of youth transition were a group of Dutch clinicians. They published a paper in 2011 establishing, well, I, I would wonder what she means by establishing, maybe asserting, that if young people with gender dysphoria were able to avoid their natural puberty, by blocking it with pharmaceuticals, followed by receiving opposite-sex hormones, they could start living their transgender lives earlier and more credibly. She goes on. It became known as the Dutch Protocol. The patient population the Dutch doctors described was a small number of young people, almost all male, who from their earliest years insisted they were girls. I'm going to have to skip through a lot of this. Is 
there there was a lot here. I want to I want to get to where she had. Okay, so she she in 2011, my department was tasked with opening the new service, and I, as the chief psychiatrist, became the head of it. In other words, transitioning prepubescent children. Even so, I had some serious questions about this. We were told to intervene in healthy functioning bodies simply on the basis of a young person's shifting feelings about gender. Adolescence is a complex period in which young people are consolidating their personalities, exploring sexual feelings, and becoming independent of their parent. Identity achievement is the outcome, this is critical here, of successful adolescent development, not its starting point. She goes on. I, I've got to have this. Looks like a long article. Uh, here, we are a country of five and a half million with a nationalized healthcare system, and because we required a second opinion to change identity documents and proceed to gender surgery, I have personally met and evaluated the majority of young patients at both clinics considering transition. To date, more than five hundred. In early years, our psychiatric department agreed to transition about half of those. In recent years, this has dropped to about 20%. As our service got underway starting in 2011, there were many surprises. It's always the way it is. It's always unanticipated consequences of so many things that sound so bright. Not only did the patients come, they came in droves. Around the Western world, the numbers of gender dysphoric children were skyrocketing. But the ones who came to us were nothing like what was described by the Dutch. We expected a small number of boys who had persistently declared they were girls. Instead, 90% of our patients were girls, mainly 15 to 17 and instead of being high-functioning, the vast majority presented with severe psychiatric conditions. She goes on to describe this. I'm trying to get this out of here. Okay, I don't want to subscribe. Maybe later. All right. Okay. Oh, gosh. They're going to cut me off here. Mm-hmm. Okay, soon after our hospital began offering hormonal interventions for these patients, meaning the girls, we began to see that the miracle we had promised was not happening. What we were seeing was just the opposite. The young people we were treating were not thriving. Instead, their lives were deteriorating. We thought, what is this? Because there wasn't a hint in the studies that this could happen. Sometimes the young people insisted their lives had improved and they were happier. But as a medical doctor, I could see that they were doing worse. They were withdrawing from social activities. They were not making friends. They were not going to school. We continued to network with colleagues in different countries who said they were seeing the same things. She goes on, she goes on, she goes on, she goes on about the same observation. In the U.S., 
Your first pediatric gender clinic opened in Boston in 2007. Fifteen years later, there were more than 100 such clinics. As the protocols developed, fewer limitations were put on transitioning. You know, when you read this from your phone, you get calls. (laughs) Okay. Let me go on. In addition to the very psychiatrically ill patients I was seeing, a new new set of patients started arriving at our clinic. We began to see groups, groups of teenage girls, okay? This is a little bit of, you know, the influence from peers that this is Psych 101. This is Adolescent Psych 101, and I can't believe it hasn't been brought up as a factor. Also, usually from 15 to 17 years of age, from the same small towns or even the same schools, telling the same life stories and the same anecdotes about their childhoods, including their sudden realization that they were transgender, despite no prior history of dysphoria. We realized they were networking and exchanging information. And so we got our first experience of social contagion linked gender dysphoria. This was happening in pediatric gender clinics around the world. And again, health providers were failing to speak up. I understand the silence. Anyone including physicians, researchers, academics, and writers who raised concerns about the growing number of gender activists activists, and about the effects of medically, medically transitioning young people were subject to organized campaigns of vilifications and threats to their career. It's a long article. She goes on and on. Let me see if I can find her final conclusion. Uh... She says the foundation on which the Dutch protocol was based is crumbling. Researchers have shown that their data had some serious problems, and in their follow-up they failed to include many of the very people who may have regretted transition or changed their minds. Okay, this is her observation. She basically said, I'll summarize it. She said, I was at the forefront of all of this. And now I have serious, serious reservations. Uh, okay. In June 2020, a major event happened in my field. Finland's national medical body, Cohere, released its findings and recommendations regarding youth gender transition. It concluded the studies touting the success of the gender affirming model were biased and unreliable. Systematically so in some cases. Uh, UK and Sweden have also decided none of this gender affirming for minors. And now, as I understand it, there are seven countries in Europe who do not allow this. In the U.S., she says, these groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, have been actively hostile to my message that my colleagues and I are urging okay all righty so there's a still the, the medical movement right now is heavily in that direction and um, 
It's a long article. If you want it, go to the free press. It's there. This is Dr. Ray. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom.com webinar. That's catholichom.com webinar. See you there. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sick. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see Him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. As I said, the restaurant guarantee, 17 minutes. All you have to do is listen. 17 minutes total of any program. And within one month, someone will come up to you in a restaurant after seeing your children as they say blessings and as they use their manners, saying what beautifully behaved children. Now, you do have to listen, I think. I I want to correct something I said earlier. You do have to listen for about 45 minutes to get somebody to then offer to pay for your meal. Okay, but you get the compliment at 17 minutes. Good evening, Dr. Ray. Little Alfred Hitchcock salutation there. I'm pregnant with my fourth child. Oh, what is wrong with you? You are committing the one unforgivable sin in our culture, having more than 1.86 children. How dare you? Especially married to the same guy. What is wrong with you? I'm only five weeks along. I'm blessed with healthy babies and children. My parents are thrilled to hear this news. I know that my in-laws, particularly my mother-in-law, will be upset, angry even. Since it's gotten more and more negative to share the news of new babies with my mother-in-law, I've had to be out of the house for the most recent baby's announcement. Well, I'm going to assume that that's your husband who told his mother And you didn't want to be there as you will go on and talk about her reaction here. She tends to scream and have a huge fit. Dr. Ray, I am not being hyperbolic right now. She says some very cruel things to me when I'm pregnant. My plan 
for this baby was to go as long as possible without telling her. But how do I do that with my kids already knowing? I've told the kids, it's a surprise. So we're not going to tell grandma for a little while. My mother-in-law has a hot temper and screams often. I believe she's had a rough childhood. She screams at my father-in-law to go to his room. She openly tells a group of people that she should have divorced him years ago. I'm not used to this type of behavior, Dr. A. It makes me uncomfortable. A therapist that I used to see, this is where it's really getting complicated, has had to call child protective, has, has had to call, okay, the therapist apparently called child protective services due to an episode of physical abuse she's had on my second daughter. We no longer trust her to be around our children unsupervised. Now, this is an interesting line that mom says here. I love her and behave according to that love because it's what I must do as a follower of Christ. It is very hard most of the time, however. Suggestions on how I ought to go about handling this pregnancy news? I'm worried about making her very angry. Okay, mom, couple of things. What is hiding the news doing for you? All you're doing is putting off the inevitable ugliness. She's going to go crazy, at least from the way you describe it, for whatever the reason. And obviously you didn't get into the details on why she thinks this is so awful and terrible that you have children. So, loving her does not mean she's easy to love. Loving her may mean you just have to minimize her damage that she does. But if it were me, I would not be bullied by her. You have every right to rejoice in your fifth child. And if she can't handle it, that is her problem. And you don't have to be worried about her reaction. You've already described someone who is quite emotional who can get very irate, if you want to use that mild word, about this. Really, it's none of her business whatsoever. So, I would suggest you think about having your husband there with you as protection when you say, we're pregnant again. At which point she goes crazy and you look at her and say nothing as if the look on your face says, what is wrong with you? You might want to say, if you want to say anything, you might want to say, don't you like your grandchildren? Why are you acting like this? See, I think just reading between the lines of your letter here, Mom, she's really kowtowed you. Is that proper use of that word? No, kowtow means I yield to you. She's really bullied you, maybe? Keeping in the bovine analogy here. She's really intimidated you. Manipulation, intimidation. It sounds like, at least from what you're saying, I don't know her. Sounds really ugly. So, yeah, you can love her. You don't wish retaliation to her. You don't hate her. You don't want to completely shun her. But you don't have to put up with her either. When she acts like that, I would imagine she would either storm out I would hope she wouldn't get physical on you. That's why I would suggest you have her son there. Don't try to tell her on your own. But I think the longer you put it off, the worse. And maybe you might even say something like, you know, you might 
you might want to start getting used to it because we're going to accept any children God gives us. Now, you said, I'm worried about making her very angry. Oh, you don't have to be worried. You are going to make her very angry. You don't have to worry about it. And you're basically saying, well, how do I tell her so that she doesn't go crazy on me? I Just from what you described, it doesn't sound like you can. Think about it. She's already reacted like that at previous children. So it's only going to be worse with more children. So I wouldn't even waste another minute being worried about her reaction. I'd spend my time being grateful to God and telling her this is the way it is. Easy for me to say. I'm sitting here behind a microphone. While Mary's not mentioned as often as Moses, not mentioned as often as Peter or Paul, her role in Scripture is even more significant. She's absolutely unique. There are many prophets, there are many apostles, but there's only one God-bearer. There are a lot of people who proclaim the Word of God. There's only one woman who bore the Word of God, quite literally, within her. She's utterly unique in that she literally transmits the Word of God to the world. So when the Word of God wanted to take on human flesh, whose human flesh did he choose? It was Mary's. She donated out of her own life substance the flesh of Jesus. The body prepared for Christ is taken from the Blessed Mother. Nobody else in salvation history occupies such a role. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Can a church made up of sinners still be holy? St. Teresa, the little flower, says this about the Catholic Church. If the church was a body composed of different members, it could not lack the noblest of all. It must have a heart, and a heart burning with love. And I realized that this love alone was the true motive force which ennobled the other members of the church to act. If it ceased to function, the apostles would forget to preach the gospel. The martyrs would refuse to shed their blood. Love, in fact, is the vocation which includes all others. It is a universe of its own, comprising all time and space. It is eternal. The Catholic Catechism tells us that our divine Lord, who knew nothing of sin, came only to expiate sin. So the Church embraces sinners in order to save them. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Nice to have you with me, Dr. Ray Grady. Program Doctor's in Monday through Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern Time. This is E-Person Monday. My friend is 70 years old, was divorced many years ago. She works full-time to maintain her home. She has a 35-year-old niece who came to live with her, since this niece was estranged from her parents. Well, I don't know how long that's been. wish I knew. The niece has a job, quite capable of paying rent, 
or helping around the house, but she does neither. She lives upstairs and is generally unsociable. Oh, there's the answer to my question. See, I choose these because I read them over the first time and then I forget the details of it, which I like because I get a chance to speculate on what could be coming up. This was supposed to be a temporary situation, but (laughs) the niece has stayed on for three years. Pretty nice. Rent-free, doing nothing. The greater problem is that this niece's uncomfortable presence is driving my friend's family away. Now, she doesn't get into details on exactly how this niece is doing that. My friend's daughter, son-in-law, and grandchildren, she calls them a very loving and vivacious family, don't want to be around this niece and are staying away. Okay, I have no idea what the details are regarding this niece's behavior, what she can be like, etc., Apparently, if this is a very loving family, then somehow this is an ongoing thing that they've decided, okay, we're not going to visit mom, which I'm a little disappointed about that because I think it would take an awful lot of obnoxiousness to keep someone from visiting their mother, especially if it's an obnoxiousness from another person. The family has approached their mother about this. Various times. But their mother doesn't seem to grasp the situation. She doesn't enjoy the niece, but she defends her. And feels sorry for her, apparently. That would be my guess. My guess would be that somehow, some way, she sees this niece, even though she has a job and is capable of paying rent, as somehow a victim or somehow misunderstood or somehow needs to a little more time to get on her feet. If, in fact, your friend is bound by guilt or perhaps a misguided duty, then reasoning with her probably isn't going to get you too far. What you might do, though, is if you can, you might talk to her children, her son, daughter-in-law, grandchildren, and say, if at all possible... Don't retreat from your mom. If you must, pick her up and go out to dinner. Go out to breakfast. Somewhere away from the home. Pick her up and bring her to your house. Don't stay away from her because of this obnoxious niece. You don't want to put yourself in the situation at that home. You got other options. She goes on. It doesn't make sense to me to choose this ungrateful mooch over her own loving kids and grandkids. Her daughter has approached me as a longtime friend in desperation. I'd appreciate any advice. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on a little bit of what I said, which is find ways not to retreat from your mother. She's motivated by some kind of emotions, not reason. She feels as though it's her Christian duty. 
she feels maybe protective of this niece who's in her mid-30s and still running her life this way. So, in fact, uh, you can't probably chip your way through the emotional roadblock that is there. So I would find ways to still support, connect, be around their mother in ways that are easy for them. If it is so distasteful for them to go to the house where this girl is, girl, woman, is, then go other places. Find excursions. Have her come to your place. But quit if in any way you continue to bring up this subject. Quit it. I got a feeling it's been broached many, many times. And all it does is add a layer of guilt to Grandma. Because she's not going to cut this 35-year-old woman loose from her house and her support. She's not going to do it. For whatever the reason, she's not going to do it. And it's only further hurting her seeing that she's losing her own children. So in any way that they can, rather than trying to convince her to cut this girl loose to be independent, they can still have an attachment to her. I think that's just... I got a feeling if anybody talked to Grandma they would find out that she's probably far more distressed that her own family is pulling away from her than she is distressed at having to put up with this, what you call mooch. So work through the kids. I don't have time to start another e-person. Let me give a, a, a general look-back e-person. When someone is constricted by some powerful emotional motivation all the reasoning all the logic all the consequential type talk seems to go nowhere and it's frustrating because they will attempt to respond to this reasoning by justifications this is why I do it well this is why I I can't do what you're saying well, this is why what you're saying would make me feel terrible. So you can't get anywhere. The problem is when we want to save someone from their being manipulated, we keep approaching the subject to the point of almost badgering. And you don't want to badger. You, you've expressed it once, twice, three times, five times, eight times, however many. And you've really got nowhere other than to frustrate the person you're trying to convince. So, see what you can do to support her in your own way. But pulling away, I think that would be a really last option. I'm Dr. Ray.
Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Father Benedict Rochelle. There are legitimate differences of opinion in any religion. There are differences of opinion in Catholicism. But in Catholicism, you expect that people will take the teaching of its supreme authority seriously. To go diametrically opposed to those teachings is to not be a Catholic. Someone in the name of Catholicism is sponsoring the destruction of human life, lives of unborn children. And they got the name Catholic on the door. The highest authority in Catholicism and the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Evangelium Vitae, is absolutely clear that no Catholic can support abortion and that Catholics are responsible to take serious action against legalized abortion. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Dr. Rigoretti, your pen light on the path to psychological wholeness. Providing the mortar to fill in those ugly, unwanted psychological gaps. Thank you for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. It's E-Person Monday, and I'm slowly trying to work my way through this stack of E-Persons. The problem is more E-Persons come in than I cover in any given E-Person Monday. I created a situation where I share a home with my daughter and son-in-law and their four children. Ages 9875. After widowhood for five years, I helped them buy a larger home with grandma space. All right, so grandma's going to go live with her daughter and son in law. Okay. I entered with the mindset this is their home, it is their rules for raising their children. I try very hard to limit input. And I am very aware that my daughter considers my suggestions as do it this way. Let me stop there. Grandma, you're right. You're very right. It usually becomes pretty clear early on when a grandparent is giving some kind of suggestion or benign guidance how it's being taken. If you have someone who is uneasy about being told anything say something as benign as well do you think he needs a coat 
Now, to you, that's just a simple little question, but it's heard as, you're telling me that I'm not a good parent because I'm not aware of whether my child needs a coat or not and that I don't care that it's cold? Now, someone might say, oh, come on, Dr. Ray. Come on. That's certainly over-interpreting it. Well, yeah, it is, but it happens, and I think it's happened in this case. I overstep, this is a very good, this is a, a humbling confession. I overstep my own boundaries, usually after wine, <laughs> by opining. She put that in quotes. And today, I set my daughter off by reporting not so surprising results of my hip and pelvis x rays given my age. And the fact that I have bilateral replacement of knees and shoulders. Where arthritis has also taken its toll. I declared I will let things go until I'm incapacitated. I think she means, I'm a little confused on what she means. I think she means I'm not going to get any surgical interventions. I'm going to just live with this until it gets to the point where I can no longer live with it because I can't function. This, quote, set her off, end quote. Slamming plates for dinner, silence, behavior that expressed displeasure. This is my take, but I acknowledge I pressed buttons. I know I helped create this environment. However, it is what it is now and for the future. Well, <clears throat> this is so common. I, I mean, I just I see and hear so much of this. Typically, it is more common among grandmas and daughters and daughter-in-laws. They both seem to have more of a set view of how the children should be raised. And oftentimes... The grandma, the grandmother has a different perspective on authority, on discipline, on rules, on religion than the daughter or the daughter-in-law. In most cases, and I've talked about this before, and I hammer it home on my grandparent book, a little subtle plug there. In most cases, you almost got to shut your mouth totally. You don't say anything. Unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. However... Most of the time, either direct advice is given or perhaps gentle questioning is expressed. And it is either apparently ignored by daughter or daughter-in-law or quietly swallowed, but it builds up. And then ultimately, there is an eruption And the eruption looks to be extremely overreactive to the remark. I just said this. How could she react like that? Because what you're witnessing is a time-related reaction. In other words, this has been going on, and perhaps daughter-daughter-in-law has been keeping her upset uh, either hidden to herself or coming out in very tiny ways until the disruption. Now, what do you do? 
Grandma says, I know I helped to create the environment. Well, you did in the fact that you probably didn't pick up on signals that your quote-unquote suggestions, as you call them, were not being well-received. You did, in that sense. On the other hand, sounds like your daughter may have not been able to shrug them off, not been able to say, yeah, it's mom's opinion. Okay, I'll listen. It's kind of like what we used to do when I played the organ at supper clubs. The manager or the owner would come over and tell us what songs to play and how to play them and when to play them, and we'd nod and smile and then do what we wanted. And he didn't pay any attention anyway most of the time. And I think perhaps if your daughter-in-law were more of that mindset, she would nod and smile and do what she wanted. But no, she kind of took offense. She took it personally. She got upset that you were commenting on what she thought were deficiencies in your sight in her parenthood. So what do you do? You apologize like crazy. You go, and I don't mean repetitively apologize. I mean, sincerely, honestly, you go to your daughter and you say, I am so sorry. I have said way too many things that are not my business. These are your children. You are mom. You decide what to do about what. This is not my business. And I'm sorry it has taken me so long to understand that. So if you'll bear with me, I'll do everything I can to not do that anymore. Forgive me if if it happens. If I say something, tell me. I'll apologize again. I'm very sorry. Now, some of you listening might say, but Dr. Ray, it's not all her fault. The The daughter sounds very sensitive. That's irrelevant. That is irrelevant. Right now, the daughter's really upset. Grandma wants to make it right. Okay, so you go to her and you just told, you take full blame. Even though you realize part of the blame belongs with the daughter, you take full blame. Because what's it, what is it going to do you to point out to the daughter, you know, I'm not the only one here. You're, you're hypersensitive. You misinterpret things. You take things like I don't mean them. No, no, that's not going to do you any good. Because she's not going to say, yeah, you're right. I've been thinking about that. You're absolutely right. Not likely. Why do I think that? Because... If she were more likely to say something like that, along the way she wouldn't have gotten so upset about whatever Grandma said about running the house or her parenting. Now, I don't know why she got so upset when Grandma said, I'm not going to approach any kind of intervention until I'm (laughs) too incapacitated to move. I don't know. I have no idea. But I think your best move, Grandma, is to sincere apologize and commit as best you can to not do it anymore or if you slip up ask your daughter to point it out to you dr ray brought to you by the nonprofit seaton home study hi everybody dr ray garendi here you thinking about homeschooling Seton Homeschooling, 40 years of experience, 17,000 current students, pre-K through high school. They provide the books, the lesson plans, the counselors, the grading services, the tests. That's right, pretty much everything. My wife and I use Seton, some of our children. Tell you this, two of them got perfect ACT scores in verbal. And overall, the Seton students scored more than 100 points above average on the SAT. 
over 30% higher on English and reading on the ACT. It's a rigorous program. You want to give the very best to your kids? Trust me on this one. Go with Seton. It is a beautifully rigorous academic program. Go to seatonhome.org. That is seatonhome.org. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. I better get right to it. Trying to get through this thick stack of e-persons. Hi, Dr. Ray. My husband seems to tell petty lies. Most of the time, they're inconsequential. I've talked myself out of taking it personally. Now, Mom, you you say that, but there's a line later in your e-person that says you're still taking it personally. Sometimes I need something done. I ask him. He says it's done. And then it's really not done. And I can't check his work because he'd get offended that I don't trust him. When I catch him in a lie, I've learned to say it's not true to avoid the word lie, which causes him to get upset. And he eventually explains something like he said he did it because he didn't think it needed to be done, dot, dot, dot. Well, let me stop right there. It sounds like these petty lies generally are around something that he didn't get to that you wanted him to do. He didn't think it was any big deal or he just didn't get around to it because he don't want to. So it's kind of like the person, the kid confronted with, did you do this? And then they simply say, no, I didn't because they don't want the consequences. And his attitude is, well, you're going to get upset at me. So I'm going to lie about it as long as I can. So you don't get upset with me. All right. Do you have any tips? for managing a busy household around this communication handicap. Well, I wouldn't use the word handicap. That's a pretty strong word. Or tips for nagging or tips for silencing. Now, here's where she takes it personal. The nagging question at the back of my mind. If he lied about this, this, and that, what else will he lie about? All right. Now, that is taking it personal because that's extrapolating. From what you said, very briefly here, you basically said that he lies about things he didn't do. And I confront him, and he tries to duck out of it. Okay. You have no evidence that he's going to lie to you about big stuff, especially since you haven't indicated you have caught him in any big stuff. Not gambling away the kid's college fund, is he? You haven't saw him texting someone on his phone, have you? It's more or less a dynamic of, I ask him, he didn't do it. I didn't check on it. He tries to get out of it quote-unquote, trouble. All right, here's what you do. You ask him 
do you not tell me about these things because you just want to avoid my reaction? You don't like how how upset I get? I'm going to bet that he's going to say yes. So, here's what you do. You promise him you're not going to get upset. You're going to ask him. He says yes, and you find out later he didn't do it. So you say to him, well, okay, you didn't do it. Can you tell me when you're planning on doing it? Or do you think it's no big deal? Well, I don't think it's any big deal. I don't think it needs to be done. Okay, so are you saying you don't want to do it? In other words, what you're doing is you're taking away the dynamic of you tell me to do something. I don't feel like doing it. I don't think it's a big deal. I'm not going to tell you the truth about it. You're going to get upset, and therefore I'm going to keep ducking it. You're going to break that, you're going to break that dynamic apart. That's the pattern here. And part of the reason why you probably get so upset is what you said in the last line. The nagging question, if he lied about this, this, and that, what else will he lie about? See, what you're saying is, these aren't petty lies. These are just the lies I caught him in. There could be some big ones there that I don't know about, and that's what eats at you because when he tells a petty lie, in your mind, it's just more evidence that he's fully capable of lying about anything. Well, you don't know that. All you know is that he seems most likely to duck when you ask him if he did something. I know a lot of husbands who do that, by the way. So tell him you're not going to get upset. Tell him that if you didn't do it, just just tell me you didn't do it. I'm not going to get upset at you. I'm going to then ask you, well, do you want to do it or do you not want to do it? Because, see, I got a feeling... When you tell him to do something, you just assume he's going to do it because you told him. Now, that would be nice, but if that's not the way it is, then you've kind of set up a situation where when you check on it two weeks later, four weeks later, six months later, whatever, he's going to dodge you because he doesn't want to hear it. So tell him. I'm not going to nag you about it. I'm not going to get all upset. Tell me what you want me to do about this. If you don't think it's a big deal, are you telling me you're not going to do it? So if you're not going to do it, I know. Maybe I'll figure out how to do it. Break the dynamic. Well, as I look at the stack here, it didn't go down much. Oh, boy. There's a lot of good ones in here, too. Mm. We should do a whole bunch of E-persons. Just five straight days of E-persons so I can catch up. I got to go. Only got about 20 seconds left. You know, you're when you're getting old. We've got these rockers on our front porch. I can't get them started. I have to ask my wife to give me a push. Didn't used to be that way last week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Andrew Kruchek, for all you do over there. Thanks, Ave Maria. Thanks, EWTN. Thanks, you. Just ignore the S on the end of thanks. I'm Dr. Ray. Join me tomorrow. Walk with God. That's a... Perpetual, infinite, eternal. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.